Hello, and welcome to the Painter Bright Quarterly Slush Pile. Um, we are glad to be here with you today. Glad you're listening in. We're going to do what we always do, which is read some poems, talk about them, and basically have an editorial meeting for you to listen in on. Would be loving it if you also wanted to contribute by sending us notes on how we're doing. But otherwise, we're just going to... Um, talk about three poems today and um we're really excited so this is um weird as many of our sessions are um don't know when this will be released but we're at the peak here in america of the pandemic at least in my area new jersey new york pennsylvania have all declared peak right now um of the pandemic and so like the rest of anybody who could possibly be listening we have been on isolation and um, we're Zooming as we've done for the past three years. So we had familiarity while everybody else is like new to Zoom. So that was kind of nice. Um, and the we that I keep referring to is me alone <laughs> in my home office, uh, Kathleen Volk Miller. I'm um, a teacher at Drexel University and an essayist and memoirist and um, I'm going to bounce this over more than 6,000 miles away to the um, lovely, beautiful, oh, you're both so lovely and beautiful. Who should I bounce it to? Well, I, I, I guess I guess I'll say Samantha. Hi, Samantha. Hi, Kathy. Thank you for, um, for that nice introduction. <laughs> my, name is, my name is Samantha Neukbauer. I am an instructor at NYU Abu Dhabi. Uh, I'm originally from Philadelphia, so my family is there right now. And so half my heart is there right now. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to talk about some poetry today with Marion. <laughs> <laughs> so bouncing it from across Reem Island over here to the Abu Dhabi Mall, um, which has been shut down for the last couple of weeks. Um, so we're on lockdown here too. I don't know if we've reached our peak yet, um, but as Samantha said, you know, half my heart or half her heart's in Philadelphia and I'm right with her. Um, you know, we, we are true believers in, in the Philadelphia spirit and our friends and families are there and, and we're just rooting for you um, and sending you lots of love and positive thoughts through this bizarre time that we're in. Um, so what a delight, by the way, to be able to read poems and make decisions about which poems should go in PBQ and what a delight to be able to share the process with you, dear slushies, so that, you know, when you send out manuscripts, you have a sense of what the conversations can be like. Um, and also you get a sense of what people like when they like what they like. It's an interesting language we use. Um, so we have three poems today by Sherry Kaplan and, um, we are, uh, lucky to be three women talking about three poems by a female poet who's also writing about um, important women um, as the sort of central figures in these pieces. So Kathy, do you want to um, pick one to start with? And do you feel like reading? 
Lauren, sure. Let's just start in the order that they've been sent to us, right? Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, we were, we were saying how interesting it is that so uh, even our sound engineer is um, in absentia right now. He's he's literally in the same space, been in a different meeting um, from his home office. So um, it is truly just the three of us. Um, and fascinating, fascinating. But here we go. Thank you, Sherry Kaplan, for letting us do this. Uh, first poem, Frida Kahlo on Frida Kahlo on the female gaze. Comparison fragments the green gold of my body. Nothing compares. As a woman, I see a deer in an arrow forest with my face on and hear palpitating hooves across dry needles. As a deer, I see a woman poking her paint into my wound. What do you see, Diego? You were called oxychrome, the one who captures color. I, chromophore, the one who gives. Friendly reds, big blues, hands of leaves, noisy birds, fingers in. Flowers cackle at my ear. Can the female gaze grow fruit in a pickaxe climate? As a woman, my fingers touch blood. You may have seen it undisguised in the bathroom. As a deer, my blood touches fingers and arrowheads. You might have mistaken it for paint. You may use it. As a deer, I retain my eyebrows to express the paths of my nerves, which are yours. As a painting, I multiply into flowers and a mountain because my eyes blanket rivers and room. I don't see a mountaintop, the mountain held in the veins of the sky. Nice reading. Well, reading. Anna had a little circle there. Um, should I do that last stanza? For because of roots. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, why don't you do that? Oh, and let's see, what time is it? Okay, got it. We'll tell Joe. As a deer, I retain my eyebrows to express the paths of my nerves, which are yours. As a painting, I multiply into flowers and a mountain because my eyes blanket rivers and roots. I don't see a mountaintop, the mountain held in the veins of the sky. Wow, what a great reading. What, what, a, what a beautiful, luscious poem. Wow, I mean, what's the, where'd that line go? Um, can the female gaze grow fruit in a pickaxe climate? Yikes, yowza, so interesting. And dear slushies, when you look online, you're going to see the layout of these of this poem, and and the others are sort of wide across the page, right? Um, it almost looks like a prose poem, right? Um, in the way the the lines stretch out. Yeah, yeah. We do have stanza breaks if we want to even call them that, right? They're right, right, because it's definitely rap text. Um, but there's white space in between. Kind of, I feel those white spaces are pauses, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I could totally hear that in the way you were reading it too, when you would hit the end of a... 
that they kind of start a new thing, right? Each one is a new thing. As a woman, you were called oxychrome. As a woman, as a deer, right? They're, they're, they're transitions, each one. Mm-hmm. So she's had a lot of fun with language, obviously. But, you know, I was, um, I see a deer, a deer in an arrow forest. I was like, narrow forest? Is this a typo? Arrow forest. Arrow forest is so cool, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I see a woman poking her paint into my wound. And that makes so much like visceral sense, given that it's Frida Kahlo, right? Right. So that description of like, I see a deer in an arrow forest with my face on, right? Like, and hear palpitating hooves. It's just, I mean, I, it it just weirdly conjures Frida Kahlo's paintings Mm -hmm. in a way that is descriptive without being on point, right? Like it's it's like like capturing that, that look and the, the sort of both the content of those paintings and the emotional feeling they conjure. Right. Uh, but by using a sort of like a different kind of metaphor um, in order to create it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think um, what's interesting too is like having Frida Kahlo be part of this conversation. That's, that's very in the moment about um, the male gaze or the female gaze and, and me too. And these different things when even her, her biggest fans, which I I would consider myself a big fan, uh, understand that she's a really complicated relationship with feminism and Mm -hmm. that choice of her, um, to be in this, in this, what is, I think, uh, like a series of, of poems and, and specifically in that second stanza, the line, what do you see Diogo? Um, and I'm wondering what, like a lot of, of readers would think about that question when in some ways there's this, this trend of, of having this conversation, I think about feminism without a lot of men. Um, and I, I, I really, I really like this poem and, and I think it's kind of challenging, um, I think it's challenging the reader in certain ways too. And I, and I'm still trying to figure out, and I just think that that last stanza uh, is absolutely gorgeous. The mountain held in the veins of the sky. Yeah. Uh, I think that, that's breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like she really managed to capture the lushness of a Frida Kahlo painting with her words. Yeah. You know, just. So, and it starts in that first stanza too, right? Comparison fragments the green gold of my body, right? And if comparison is the first word of the poem, you can see it sort of like tugged through the whole way, right? So, you know, I didn't, you know, forgive me, but I didn't know what oxychrome and chromophore were or are. So I'm really grateful that poem sort of like helps to explain what that is. Um, but it's sort of like this balancing, right? That yields colors in nature. It's sort of like the, the cell structures, right? That yield that stuff is then becomes a kind of metaphor for this relationship, right? Um, between the famous relationship between Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, right? So it's, it, again, it's sort of like getting at the um, historical fact and the 
um, I don't know, emotional logics of what we imagine was in that relationship, right? Through these, through these images, which feels really true um, to the, to Freda Kahlo's like project as an artist, right? Like letting the images um, resonate and become autobiographical or become um, emblematic, right? Of her uh, sense of herself, you know? And, but I will say though, I'll, you know, when I came across the title, right, Frida Kahlo on Frida Kahlo on the female gaze, I love the sort of tumbling and confusion of that, right? Like the sort of message inside the message, right? But I was also like, oh, a poem about Frida Kahlo. Like this is going to be, that's a, that's a high mountaintop. You know what I mean? Like, is this going to be full of cliches? Is this going to be troublesome in some way? Like, you know, and, and, you know, as an editor, we read so many poems, um, you know, this poem sits somewhere, you know, between a, an ekphrastic and a, and a monologue, right? A dramatic monologue, you know, and it's bold and it's surprising, even though it's sort of working over some um, common themes for those who know anything about Frida Kahlo, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's working on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. You know, and what's interesting, I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll talk about the female gaze in a general way when we're through all these. So, uh, spoiler alert slushies, all three poems are on the female gaze and they're all, well, you'll see, you'll see, but they're all on the female gaze. So I think that's, so each of these people that she talks about, it's how they see things and make art, right? Um, yeah, I think it's really, uh, when you were first talking about the Frito Kahlo thing, I think any time that you dedicate a poem to somebody or say something like Frito Kahlo, you know, you're, you are putting yourself, it's a risk because the editor might, or, and the reader might have, you know, a little bit, the eye might start to roll already. Like, oh God, where are we? Right. And then she, you know, it's, I think it's very, um, what she took on was massive and she did a great job with it. Mm-hmm. I almost want to talk about all these poems together and I know that's not what we typically do, but uh, I, I, would, I would say like here it kind of calls for that only because I think a lot of people are familiar with the male gaze and the term and I think there's there's a little bit more ambiguity in what the female gaze is or what that has evolved into. And as much as I do love the lusciousness of this poem, I, I'm not completely sure how the female gaze is operating here in thinking about her, her own work. And mm-hmm. I think by also looking at the other poems and kind of seeing the poet's understanding of the female gaze, maybe I'll have some, some navigation tools that will, that will make this poem bloom even more. Yeah. So I'm sorry. um, I really love the fact that Sam just pointed that out um, because I, I can't read that title without thinking about film theory and Laura Mulvey which is about like the, the male gaze, right? Which, you know, it says in the title, right? Like on the female gaze, but it triggers something in my head that I go immediately into this sort of like theory territory, which is kind of hot. 
hostile to poetry in the sense, right? Of it like, you know, it has to have a framework and there's a description or a meaning for the way that male gaze works, you know, psychoanalytically on individuals. So I was actually relieved, believe it or not, that the that the poem doesn't offer a theory of looking. It offers an example of her looking complicated and fraught, right? So right. And Laura Malvey's The Third Poem, you know, that we're discussing today. So, yeah, I mean, Sam, I think this is an entirely different situation. This is definitely a series of, you know, like clearly a series. I think these clearly need to be discussed about as a group, discussed as a group. You know, unlike, I think I always stand so strongly on that. Let's discuss them one by one when they are different poems, you know, about different things. That's when I don't like the comparison. But this mm-hmm. series, I think we should discuss as a whole because, right, because I, I, I don't want to say yet what I think about what she's doing with the female gaze. I think it's very different than how we normally think about the male gaze of, of a piece. Mm-hmm. I think these females are all taken very individually. Yeah. And she's not making a theoretical statement about how all women see a thing as the male gaze does. Right. right? So I've read about um, in more recent years, um, kind of still in the film realm, the director, Jill Soloway, talking about her idea of the female gaze in kind of in tune with the male gaze is not that the female gaze, like kind of looking outward into the world, but it's the female gaze almost in the same idea of the male gaze, except the female gaze is like looking on herself and thinking about like what men think of her. Yeah. And I, I don't necessarily um, see that in, in this poem. Um, Totally. Even though it says, what do you see, Diogo? I'm not sure that the next couple lines answer answer that question, like what he sees maybe visually. Um, so so it's interesting for me to think about how, how she might be playing with that. Um, because I, I don't find this poem very sexual either. Um, and, and I and I tend to kind of associate these terms with 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 sex and erotics. Which terms? Oh, the gaze, the gaze itself. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to I want to jump in because I know this is like a familiar text for you, Sam. Um, and mm-hmm. working with students um, at NYU Abu Dhabi is John Berger's Ways of Seeing, and he's got that section on um, men looking at women, right? Mm-hmm. And it you know he's writing about fine art certainly. But he articulates it beautifully, this way that women internalize a masculine gaze. So they're both like subject and object constantly, right? They're looking, but they're imagining themselves being looked at. So they're constantly in this sort of split subjective position, right? And he says it better than I do, but that helps me understand kind of what she's doing here in that... um, Again, Berger's not looking at the female gaze. He's talking about how women see themselves, (laughs) right? And in this, it's sort of like this interesting, somebody said it earlier, there's almost dialogue with Diego, right? Like there's a asking him what he thinks and then continuing on, right? Like his voice doesn't enter into the poem, right? Like it's still still the speaker, right? Um, 
and, and I'm assuming it's Frida Kahlo, right? Like that's the, the dramatic monologue moment. It's still her voice imagining what he might think, but really staying in her own preoccupations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I like for me that the word pickaxe like evokes a lot of like coldness, like mountaineering in the Arctic, even though um, there aren't like images of coldness here. Um, But it, it feels there is that contrast between can the female graze grow food, fruit in a Pixac climate. Um, and I really like that, how this kind of object for me can serve as this like contrast to like growing fruit and also signal like all these Arctic and imagery. Yeah, I am. So I would add to that only by saying that pickaxe makes me think deserts, not frozen tundra, right? Like it makes me think of like dry mountains, like panning for gold or like picking for, for gold. So either way though, it's like that climate is sort of not, it's not robust, right? It's, it's sort of dry and arid and, you know, these questions of fertility float, like float through the poem. So it's funny that it's like, you know, Sam points out, it's not like sexual and erotic, but it, they're, they're that the question, the fertility issues are there from from the beginning, and then fl- like sort of flowing through right um, to her references about blood, you know. Um, anyway, so what do you think, ladies? Do you want to vote on this one? Do you want to keep talking about it? Uh, do you want to vote on them after we discuss all three? Want to do something different? Um, or do you want to discuss one by one? Let's do something different. Why not? Let's, let's see what happens. All right. And this way we get some dramatic tension on the episode. Yeah. No, yeah. Sherry Kaplan. Sorry, you're going to have to wait. Sherry <laughs> <laughs> okay, Kaplan, we're going to put off, we're going to put off the decision making for just a little longer. <laughs> All right. So the second poem is called... Um, Hang on a minute. Let me get it on my screen. Lee Miller on the female gaze. Um, And Samantha, you want to read it? Sure. Okay. Give me one second. Okay. Okay. Don't melt until I've lit you. Covered to the neck, a sheet to morph you the shine on your don't face. Now topless in the metal chair, like an uncorked bottle, cross at the elbows, look down at the ants. Don't cavort until I've snapped. We'll have some when he's over, come under. An object could fall on top of you at any moment. It might be a person. Tar stretches like a bird's foot. Maybe life's a nude picnic. Then the tar comes in with the tide and I'm dyed blue. Wearing a net, I can take my own pictures. Thank you. I can deal with some glare. If you're thinking it's not my place to guess what? Maybe this dead coral you're posing with you puts your father in your head. Maybe a dead pillow or a case pack. Hide it behind your face. Nice. 
And this one isn't straight lines. This has lots of dropped lines and white space. And you just got to look slushies. You got to look for yourself. You can't really describe this one. But Sam did a great job with the odd line breaks and spacing. And the odd exclamation points, right? It's so interesting how even in that first line, it's like, don't exclamation point melt until I've lit you. Uh And I, have to say how much I just love that first line. Like that, that surprise. Like it's, it looks like it's grammatically, you know, mistaken. Right. And then it's perfect given that it's about Lee Miller, who was a photographer and you can sort of figure that out in the poem, but she was like, I think in, I want to say like the forties, she was a photojournalist. And she was a model first. That's right. That's yeah, right. And so I think that's, that's really important. Right? There is such shoot. Sam, are you still here? I'm here. Marion's frozen slushy. Right. And oh, Marion, hold yeah. on one second. You froze. Okay. We missed everything you said. Okay. Hang on. Did you yeah. did you did you hear about Hitler's bathtub? Nope. Okay. So, all right. I'm just making a note. So it's 9.37 your time, right, Kath? I have 9.36, but sure. Go find right, it. Perfect. So, um, so Kathy, you were saying that Lee Miller was a model and a photographer as well. Well, she was a model first, I think. I think she was a model and then stopped modeling and started being a photographer. And the thing that I know about her is a famous photograph that um, that was taken uh, after just after World War II, like the day World War II ended and she was sitting in Hitler's bathtub. I think that's a that's Lee Miller in Hitler's bathtub. And it's just an extraordinary photograph. So I'll I'll make sure to to confirm that that's hers and then link it to um, the notes. But that takes me back to why don't melt until I've lit you is extraordinary. <laughs> right. Now I want to read all about Lee Miller. Um, right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, now since we are going to discuss them as a, as a, as a suite, um, this one being in Lee Miller's voice is, is, very interesting too. I like that it's the eye and that she is giving these directives to her model. You know, um, yeah. I love the line, I can deal with some glare. Mm-hmm. For me, this brings up like a lot of conversations that I've overheard or been a part of. And, you know, when women were, were trying to discuss like, not wanting to be objectified, but wanting to be admired and like where that lands today and even how to talk about that. And, and here it also, you know, is she glaring at herself, like brings another layer to that. Um, I just, I just, I really like this one. And, and, and again, I, I really like the form of it and how, um, the form for me seems to to be photogenic in a way of like taking a photo and the words seem se- are separate. Um, I, I really enjoyed this poem, even without knowing much about Lee Miller. So I, okay. So in reading them next to 
each other is super interesting too, because they're both first person poems, right? But the first one, Frida Kahlo on Frida Kahlo on the female gaze, just turns that whole thing inward, right? Like it is such a sort of like inward, self-reflective meditation about, right, the self, even though there's there's also this sort of like invoking and dialoguing with Diego, right? Um, Lee Miller on the female and then parenthetical gaze. It, it strikes me as like a, also a little complicated stance, but then clearly in the first person and she's talking to someone like, don't melt until I've, I've lit you. Like there's a, there's a, there's someone, you know, in, in the conversation with her, um, that allows her to be talking about both her craft and her sense of self, where she stands. And then the thing that I love about this too, is like, as you know, Kathy noted the, her experience as a model and then her experience as a photographer, the last line is incredible, right? Or the last cluster of lines, maybe a dead pillow or a case packed, hide it behind your face. Right. Like, holy mackerel, like the, the female face as sort of close up as object, you know, for a photograph. Right. And now the last line of the poem is also like and it's a mask. It's the thing that is, you know, the, the, the only thing you see behind which is this whole spiraling world of secrets and and possibilities and mind. Right. Like it's, oh, it's good. Yeah, I think the what you say about the comparison, the first poem for me feels more like a retrospective. We're moving mm-hmm. between or amongst different paintings, whereas this, it feels like we're in the moment. Um, and I think yeah. that's really exciting, like arranging the objects around herself or around the person that is being photographed, um, which is really interesting to me. And I like the the image of the dead coral, though, though I don't think I completely understand it. Um, but but I, I do like that. Why it puts your father in your head. Exactly. But I, I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. So tar stretches like a bird's foot. Maybe life's a nude picnic. Then the tar comes in with the tide and I'm dyed blue wearing a net. I can take my own pictures. Thank you. I can deal with some glare, right? Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know what to, to say or think about those, like the images, right, in, in this part of the poem, but I don't dislike being baffled by them as it moves into that stance. She was a surrealist. And mm-hmm. I don't know her work. Like, this makes me want to go look at photos. But, I mean, I only know a couple images. But this, all this weirdness, like, tar stretches like a bird's foot and the dead coral and a dead pillow. Yeah. Like, that, you know, I, I feel like they might be referencing specific images or or something. You know, like, when she would stage her photographs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you noted that, like that quality of surrealism, because that's so present in, in, as Sam points out, like the sort of staging that's happening. Like it feels it clearly like we're in a shoot with her. Right. And you get a sense of these um, objects that are contributing to, you know, the, the composition, so to speak, but man alive, it's like, I forget the, the director's name, but there was a, a female film director who is this, who like 
a surrealist that, and the, the film's called sketches of the afternoon, I think. And that's exactly what I was like seeing in my mind, right? Like the sort of, you know, it's a black and white film and these images are sort of like sequentially juxtaposed and it's just this, it has this beautiful impact, but you know, I don't know from a narrative necessarily, and I don't necessarily need one. Right. Um, for that film. And, and here it's sort of like the same, like the moments, the container, it's, it's the, 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 the photographic shoot happening. Right. And then her mind working through that project is super interesting. Yeah. I was thinking of like Dolly throwing the cat, you know, and it's all chaos in the what? studio. I love that. That. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I knew that story. Dolly threw a cat in a studio. Yeah, and he it's captured in a photograph. So <laughs> the cat is like in movement. <laughs> was he angry at the cat or was he trying to get a shot? I think he was trying to get a shot. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> right, and this is please don't, don't melt until I've lit you and Dolly's chucking a cat. I mean, if that's <laughs> interesting... <laughs> difference between male and female photographers, not to be too essentialist, but. I really want to tell Kat's story when we're done talking about this. <laughs> um, so it's almost hard to not vote now, but I think maybe we should roll on to the third. Yes. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I think it's your turn, Kathy, too. No, I started. Oh, right. <laughs> My turn. Right. Right. Watch out. So, okay, slushies. This is, this is a poem full of slashes, right? Um, are they forward slashes or back slashes? Forward. Forward slashes. So this is called Laura Mulvey on the Female Gaze, and the title's playing with that F-E, so it's fee in parentheses and then capital M male. So Laura Mulvey on the female gaze. A bear turned to a lounging place. Instead of unspooling story, the female leans in her lack, light against the paradox of phallocentrism, bearer of the bloody wound, subject by being objected. To exit, exist, she must thwart the male ailment Fuck Freud. Virgin vixenhood fantasies, ropes hissing the bed frame. All the men I know want to do it. Manipulation. Active male, passive female. Active male, passive. Act I've male, pass. I've fee male, act. I've pass, I've activate. How does the bearskin rug become a bear again? How we saved the trickiest one for you, Marion. Sorry about that. Wise guys. Wise guys. Um, so slushies, you really have to look at this one. This one looks the most from, from with a far gaze. It looks <laughs> the most like a regular poem, but when you're up in it and looking at it, all of those pauses that Mary was giving you were those forward slashes. So, uh, um, so you have to look, especially that next to the last ends of my goodness, active male passive. Now, do you guys know more? I only know that Maura Malvey is a film theorist, film critic, big deal, professor, writer, critiquer. 
right? I don't know anything else about her. And I feel like I really, I feel like I'm going to go ahead and say it, that I might have to, to enjoy this experience. Knowing that, knowing the little, little that I know of her does not let me in here at all. So I'll, I'll, I'll take that role. I will be the, the noob who knows nothing or the dummy, whatever, about her other than she's a film person. So, Samantha, how do you, how do you feel? Do you want to take a crack at it? Who? Oh. I, I I'll let you take the crack at it. But I think that, um, I think for me, what, what I, I know most about her is just that she coined male gaze. In, in film theory. Like that's just how I'm entering the poem. And I know she did that in the seventies. So when I read this, I'm thinking about like females in movies from like pre seventies. So that's uh, kind of my entryway. And I'm thinking a lot about like Hitchcock and his blondes for some reason. Um, but that's all that's all the the material i'm working with <laughs> all right so so this is dusty right but i remember reading this essay when i was in cinema studies as like you know the canonical like you got to read laura mulvey if you want to understand like psychoanalytic film criticism so the essay that she writes um i appear and you're i think you're right sam it's like in the in the 70s it's in screen magazine and it's all about how hollywood film um uh or is that tanya modelinski anyway the her article is about scopophilia like the pleasure in looking and kind of voyeurism and how that's attached to the construction of a male subject position right so these habits of looking and the sort of social formation of gazing, right? Um, by Laura Mulvey's terms. And then she's using both Freud and I think Jacques Lacan to make the case that to become an adult in the, in the social order, you have to identify with that male gaze, right? In order to separate from the mother, um, to enter into this realm of the symbolic, right? And that patriarchal, that's this phallocentrism stuff sort of can be found or is a, is a way of them thinking about how cinema works or how film works. That's why the article sits in screen magazine, right? So it's like using Freud and Lacan to theorize that when you sit down and you, and you watch uh, these films that are coming out of Hollywood, you're being positioned as a male viewer. Right. And then to feel like you get the joke or if you follow the narrative, you're actually being produced and reproduced as a male viewing viewing subject. So that's so I think that's the I think I'm I think I might be summarizing the Laura Mulvey piece on the male gaze. Right. So if you look then back at the poem, right, the, the sort of female leans back the light against the paradox of phallocentrism, right? Leans in her lack, right? Like that, that stuff is, that's like the lack is going to Lacan's theory of the subject, phallocentrism, and that sort of Freudian notion of the subject being objected, right? Again, that's, if you're a female, you have to envision yourself as an object (laughs) in order to be a viewing subject. That's the paradox. Yeah. Okay. Thank <laughs> you.
Yeah. So, so I say this, like this poem, right. Um, is, is wild in the way that it's imagining like a Laura Mulvey monologue, <laughs> right? So she's got all this sort of like key terms. Um, although I don't understand like the, where the bear is coming from other than the pun on like bearing the wound, that's the, the female subject and then bearskin rug. Um, it's just, it's kind of, it's kind of funny and it's witty and it's, it's taking this risk of speaking in the voice of Laura Mulvey, but it like also radically narrows the audience for the poem. Like if you don't know that piece, you, you can't fully like feel the pleasures of the, the jokes that she's making necessarily. Mm-hmm. And you can see them, but you can't, I don't know. Yeah. It's such a contrast to the Frida Kahlo poem because Frida is just so omnipresent um, yeah. like across the world nowadays. Um, and this one really is a, a different access point. But even reading them all together, um, there's something very satisfying about this one, even if you don't understand it all, I think. Mm-hmm. Within the language itself, within those forward slashes. And I do feel compelled if I, if I didn't know anything about her, if I knew something about one of the three women, I would feel compelled to look the other ones up because I trust her. Okay. I started saying, I know nothing about her. I still know only what Marion told me. Right. I just want to say this about the bear, like what I did get, or thought I got um, a bear turned to a lounging place. Aren't there many, many iconic photos of the naked woman on the bearskin rug? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so then how does the bearskin rug become a bear again? I just projected that into the woman. Like how does the woman ever get off that rug and become whole again or, you know, an autonomous non-object woman? Yeah. You know, um, I mean, and I think the other very clear stanza is virgin vixenhood fantasies, rope hissing, the bed frame. All the men I know want to do it. Man, manipulation. Like mm-hmm. I, I understood what she was getting at. But I think the most difficult stanza for me and where really I would go like, to be honest, mm-hmm. is that active make passive female active with all those slashes. Mm-hmm. You have any idea, Marion, why she's all about all these slashes through the whole thing? Because that that was also like a tick in um, Mulvey's article, right? So uh, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, and forgive me, because like I'm I'm you know I didn't check it before we we looked at this. Like so, I think I think it's Mulvey who who frankly helped me understand the whole Jacques Lacan thing about the difference between the subject and the the mother, right? And moving into um, like passing through the mirror phase, right? In Lacan's theory. So you become an adult or you become a sort of like um, an autonomous subject by, by moving through basically a mistake, right? Which is to say like she uses, or Lacan uses the image of like a mother holding an infant and looking in a mirror and the infant is mistaking the infant's body and the mother's body as if it's one thing, right? You have that sense of connection and, and communion, right? And that when the infant grows into subjectivity, the infant realizes a, a, 
a sense of, of breaking or lack and otherness, otherness, othering. So mother becomes other in Lacan's theory of moving into subjectivity, right? And the way she's able to, or the way he was able to do it, or she interprets it, is putting those little parentheses around the M for mother to show how mother is the fundamental other, right? In a phallocentric psychoanalytic theory, right? Like the, the woman is always the source of the lack because she was always the source, right? That you have to be separated from in order to move into subjectivity. And dear slushies, it's been a while. Like yeah. fucking that up so hard. No, so just, you're, what you're saying is all of these parentheticals and forward slashes are modeling how Laura Mulvey wrote. She wrote yeah. using those. Yeah, this is that sort of you know like critical theory, multiple meanings at all times with parentheses and slashes, right? Like so, she's trying to get all the meanings at once when language doesn't allow for that, right? Language is always the lack. And so, so these slashes and parentheses right. are trying to recuperate all that. Yeah. Light against the lack. Yeah. Bearer of the bloody wound. There it is. Yeah. Right? Subject, subject by being objected, right? Yep. So a, a woman, therefore, right, to move into this sort of position of gazing at an object, right, can only do that by being objected herself, right? Like that's the that's the part of the paradox. Yeah. Yeah. See, now this is tricky because now I'm getting more into it as I am learning. But would a reader spend this time? You know, mm-hmm. or just be pushed out. Would a reader be so intrigued that they would want to read more about Laura Mulvey? Or would they just go, well, huh? And flip or scroll past on this one. I don't know. I'm being, I'm asking you guys. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, mean, I wasn't repulsed. <laughs> and maybe also because I read the other two first, you know, I wanted to give it a shot, but this definitely engaged me the least. Mm-hmm. And and I felt it was my lack of knowledge on Laura Mulvey. And, you know, it didn't actually make me feel, I didn't feel bad about that lack of knowledge. I felt like the poet should have worked harder to get me engaged, whether I knew Mulvey or not. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And even my little bit of knowledge, just knowing that she was a film person, I didn't know that she, you know, so much else about her. I don't know. I find this one the most difficult to be hooked. I think I think I, I differ in that. I think I like this one the, the most, actually. And I think... Or second most, but I, I, I really, I, what I, what I like about this one too, is these, um, these division, these decisions about this forward slash and, and the different ways that, that she could have done that. Um, I was thinking a little bit about how it would feel different if it was like, like the, like in the second line, right. It says the F E forward slash male leans in her lack. If instead it was done, so it was female 
and then another slash and then the corrected word now. I just, I think the placement of the slashes just leave a lot of interest for me and, and they're done differently throughout it. So it's not like she gets into a pattern and, and she keeps doing that. Right. Like, um, in that, in that second stanza, it starts one one of the lines, and then in the next stanza, hmm. it changes the the tense of something, um, and then in other ones, it, it rewrites something. So I, I find that what I like about this poem is it it commands extra readings, and yeah, it does command maybe that outside. Um, not a search for outside knowledge or application of outside knowledge, but I kind of think it's a, it's a very hot button or hot topic right now too. Um, so yeah, I, I really like this one. Um, I am so ambivalent <laughs> and it's, and I, and so there's one place where I do want to just like, point to that I'm not in love with. And maybe this is just um, knee jerky, but it's in the second to last stanza and it's on the active slash male slash passive, right? The stanza that's so, you know, once you see it, you'll, you'll know what we're talking about. Um, the, the first line of that stanza, the words are not um, sort of played with, right? The second line, it's the same words, but the slashes are in different places. And as Sam notes, that sort of changes the sort of like the meanings, right? Or just opens up the meanings of the words that we think we know into meaning something slightly different. Then the third line is activate with an exclamation point. And I don't like that at all. <laughs> I'd rather have, I, ra- I would rather have had just the two lines and ending with I've right. Yeah. Um, for, for that ambiguity of that rather than the supercharged like remedy of activate, because that goes directly to how does the bearskin rug become a bear again? The question there is far more interesting, right. Um, to me, than the, than the, than the, you know, the claim, right. Or the, the sort of dictate to activate, because it does take me back to that first image, right. A bear turned into a lounging place, all those sexy pictures of, of women on bear skin rugs. Right. And it's, and, and again, reading these as a sweep, I can't help but then go back to Lee Miller. I can't help but go back to thinking about like, you know, women as objects in photographs, women as photographers themselves and the, the slipperiness of being on both sides of that equation, right? Um, making the image and being made by a camera, you know? Um, anyway, so I, I, I agree with you because that was the only line in it that I, I also paused at too. And it has that, that superhero, but like <laughs> yeah. that Wonder Woman quality, which, you know, you, I saw the most recent Wonder Woman and it is dripping with male gaze. And, um, and I, I think that's really interesting. Um, I think it also has a little bit of that kind of, uh, that language of Beyonce to that formation and, and what that means. Um, and kind of these, these calls to like, um, to get in line or something. Oh, excuse me. That's my cat. These calls to get in line that almost have a, a militaristic bent to them as well, which might be reading to this a little much, but, but yeah, I would say that's, that's my least favorite line. 
it's just it just comes out of tone and voice of the piece. You know what I mean? The it activate is a directive. You know, she might say fuck Freud earlier, but it's not it's not the same. Activate is its own line, its own word. Tonally, it's a shocker, right? Too. Definitely. I think we should start from the top and vote. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, Frida Kahlo on Frida Kahlo on the female gaze. Wait, One. hold up. Strategy-wise, are we are we going to do it looking at each other with, with thumbs? Absolutely. Why not? Okay. All right. Okay. Because we can, right? <laughs> so one, two, three, shoot. Wait, wait. I didn't know which one we were doing first. I'm Frida so sorry. Callow. I did say oh, it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Start okay. from the, the female gaze. One, two, three, shoot. Okay. All right. And that is unanimously in. Thank you, Sherry Kaplan. And Lee Miller on the female gaze. One, two, three, shoot. And it's also in. Thank you, Sherry Kaplan. Unanimously in. And Laura Mulvey on the female gaze. One, two, three, shoot. And it's in. Yay! Uh, I love a suite of three. So funny. That's so funny. So I have... Yeah, I, listen, I'm so glad we said yes to the Laura Mulvey one um, for a couple of reasons, right? I really like how these three sit as a suite. It's going to be cool for readers to sort of like, you know, dip into the next issue of PBQ and see them there, right? But I also can imagine immediately recommending to my colleagues here at NYU Abu Dhabi who teach that Laura Mulvey piece right now, right? Like, Sam Anderson's teaching it in his class about spectacle. Um, you know, we've got people in, in media studies who are teaching it. I would love to just point to this poem and say, okay, you've had your students read this really difficult um, theoretical essay or psychoanalytic criticism. Now here's an ekphrastic, right? Like this is a poem written in the voice of Laura Mulsey grappling with those ideas. Like what a great recreation of a terrifically difficult and important essay. So three cheers to you, Shari Kaplan. Yeah. As, as I said, I wasn't as engaged with that one, but I love the three together as a suite. I think it's important. And just cause I don't know about Laura Mulvey. Many of our readers will. So yeah, I like them together very, very much. Yeah. Three is much better than two. So we will, yeah. Yeah. We will um, put a bunch of links to, um, images and related texts and everything from Maya Darren's meshes of the afternoon to um, pictures from Lee Miller's collection to who was it? Salvador Dali chucking a cat. <laughs> well, yeah. make sure to, to put those links um, in the show notes. And I just also wanted to say thanks to Samantha's cat for joining the conversation there. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you guys see that, uh, Jason has been side texting me and letting me know that he just woke up. So Jason, you missed the entire um epi. I the whole thing. <laughs> and I did. You would have been really good on this one. I'm a monster. Uh, no, never, never yeah. my love. I actually have to teach really soon. So I have okay. to say uh, later, and I don't know. Uh, sorry, slushies, to get technical on you for a second, but our wonderful sound engineer, Joe Zhang, set us up with this. 
and he is the host, so I don't know exactly.